This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is fiction writer, poet, and essayist Kim Adonizio. Her latest work is a memoir called Bukowski in a Sundress, Confessions from a Writing Life. Told in essays, Adonizio's memoir touches on wide-ranging issues, including her discovery of the beauty of language, mother-daughter relationships, sobriety and its opposite, death, writing, fame, and more. Some of the essays are entitled Necrophilia, Pants on Fire, Children of the Corn, and All Manner of Obscene Things. Adonizio divides her time between the Bay Area and New York City. We began by talking about the term confessional and what it meant to her and for the title. It's a very interesting term, and I talk about it somewhere in the book about sort of being tarred and feathered for being confessional or being called that. And so partly I think I like to play with that whole idea because I've been called a confessional poet. And I think it's usually meant as a a really negative term that discounts any idea that there might be any art behind what you're writing, that it's just some kind of cathartic spill for the writer. And I really disagree with that. I mean, you know, confession is a mode of writing since St. Augustine that's been around. And I think if it really works, it's not about just spilling your stuff to other people. It's about saying something about your life that hopefully other people can connect with. And that's the way I think of it. So when I put the word confessions on there, I knew I was inviting that kind of label. And, but I don't mind that, you know, I think people are going to think what they're going to think. And they're, if they're actually going to read the work, they're going to decide if it speaks to them or not. So uh, it doesn't really matter what they call it in the end. So what was the original impetus for this? I want to talk about your family a little bit after, but I know that you have written, you write poems, you write essays, you write fiction. So what got you to this point in your career and in your life where you decided to write about this, which does focus a lot on your family and your creative life? Well, I had written something a few years ago that didn't really pan out. And then I ended up coming back to some of the work in that and liking it. And also I had been asked to write some essays by various people that were putting together anthologies. So I found that I really liked writing these essays on different topics that someone would say, oh, I'm doing a book on, on, on motherhood and we don't want the traditional mom in the kitchen in the apron kind of mother. We want to really show the range of the kinds of, of, of mothering that's out there. And so that's where that one of those pieces in the book came from. I think it's called All Manner of Obscene Things. And that was the result of an editor asking me to write a piece. And the piece called Necrophilia was the same way. And I found that I really liked sort of writing to a subject and trying to see what I could get out of it. So then I began to see that I had a few things that were working. And when I hit on the idea of the umbrella of it being the writing life, that kind of brought everything together and helped me finish the book. I'm wondering about necrophilia. You, <laughs> you, you have a, a chapter in there, an essay about that. And you're basically saying that it doesn't mean having sex with dead people. It means f- having sex and relations with people who are dead inside. Could you talk about how you came upon this realization of the word? 
that was one that was written for an anthology calling, I think, an encyclopedia of sex. And they gave us a whole long list of sex words. And we could pick whatever we wanted, you know, sort of whoever got it first had first dibs. And there were all kinds of words. And I just picked necrophilia because I thought, well, I wonder what I could say about it. That would be kind of challenging. And I like to challenge myself. So then when I was thinking about it, I thought, well, it's a great metaphor, you know, to talk about not people who are literally dead, but people who are emotionally dead in some way, or at least act as if they might be when you're in a relationship with them. And that's where I, I started to write the thing about um, falling for men who have no heart in their chest cavity and that kind of thing, and, and just having a lot of fun playing with that idea. It's just something that I kind of went with and riffed on and had fun thinking about you know, a couple of relationships that had, that felt pretty one-sided. And I think that, you know, that's something everybody can relate to. Everybody's been in a relationship where they feel like the other person is sort of just checked out in some way or not emotionally available. I certainly had had that experience more than once. And so that, that, you know, fueled some of the writing. On page 10 of your book, you talk about people who are writers and how they plunder, excavate, and strip mine without regard to, for the consequences to others. And um, that if you can manage to stand and are willing to be such a vampire, then, you know, you're asking people to read on. And I'm just wondering about that in your personal life, how you've maybe dealt with that on a personal level. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, the book, you know, there are a lot of comic essays, as you know, and there's a lot of hyperbole to create that humor. So on, on one level, that's very hyperbolic, you know, and I don't believe that. And on the other level, it is true that writers use things. And if there are people in their life, they use events and experiences, not in the sense of using people in a negative way, but just because that's what writers do. So um, my motto for that is always to try to be kind and not to unintentionally hurt anyone, but also to say that I have a right to tell my story the way it happened as well as I can remember it and the way I see it as much as I can articulate that. And and that's what matters. I think it's a concern for a lot of people that are writing um, personal essays. You know, am I going to hurt somebody by writing this? Am I going to read you know, I don't want to reveal anybody's deep, dark secrets, really. <laughs> and I don't think I do. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to be shut down from saying what I need to say. And there are two people in every interaction, and the other person has a right to tell their story, too. And I might not like it if I read it somewhere, but that's okay, you know, because that's their right. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Kim Adonizio, author of the memoir, Bukowski in a Sundress. So I'm wondering if you could talk about some of that loneliness. I felt like there was a sense of loneliness that ran through all of the essays. And there's times when you talk about drinking wine and crying. And I'm just wondering about that is, do you think that's an existential loneliness in your life? How does it, you know, it manifests in, into your work? I'm just wondering what you, your take on all of it is. Yeah, I, I don't know. I certainly have gone through a lot of loneliness and felt that. And I think that has come out because it's, you know, for writing is often triggered by some inner stuff and inner turmoil. And that's 
you know, also been a tough nut to crack. And I, I mean, you can be lonely in or out of a relationship. You know, I know married people that are very lonely <laughs> in their lives. So it's, you know, it's not like I think, oh, if I only were with someone, I wouldn't be lonely. I think it is partly just an existential condition. And the way that you deal with that or the way that I deal with that is one by being creative, like writing, and by connecting. And writing is one way to connect with people. And then, of course, you know, the friends that I love and that love me are really important in my life. And the and the poetry community and the writing community is really important to me. So I, I feel like I have a lot of those people in one way or another in my life. And that's a very good thing. Keeps you from drinking wine and crying too often. <laughs> I wonder if you ever felt before you were a published writer, when you have this goal of being a writer, and it's all mixed in with that loneliness. And I know that another person or another accomplishment doesn't solve that. I mean, sometimes you can be lonelier with someone or maybe even lonelier after you've had that big award or something. But I'm just wondering if you ever thought when you were writing and you had your first thing, big thing published, if it if you had thought it would make you feel better and did it well i i think there's always that fantasy that writing is going to solve you somehow for a lot of people including myself uh, i mean i don't have it so much now but at the beginning it was certainly true that i felt oh if only i could you know if only i could publish a poem and then it became well but if only I could publish a book and then, well, but if only the book would win an award, I mean, it just keeps going and there's no end to it. And if you invest in that, you just end up feeling really, you, you end up not appreciating the things that you have because you're always looking at how the next thing might make you feel better and solve you. And the truth is nothing and no one can really solve you. It's kind of up to you to solve your own existence and, and find out how to be in the world and how to contribute to the world. Uh, well, you talk about your parents, your mom a little more in the book than your dad, but mm -hmm. your mom was a tennis star and seemed to le lead a pretty glamorous life when she was younger. And your dad seemed like he couldn't handle once he had four kids, and especially his oldest son, your oldest, the oldest brother who had some complicated mental illness of his own. And at one point you said that you felt like you know, complicated gadgets that your parents weren't like, didn't know how to use. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about growing up in that household and how it influenced you. Yeah, well, there are a few pieces in the book about that, mostly about my mother at, at the end of her life. And my dad died a long time ago, like, God, I'm trying to remember 30 years ago. No, long, like 35 years ago. So my dad died a long time ago, and the book was written over the past five years. So that's one reason there isn't a lot about my dad in the book, because I don't have a lot of strong memories of him or of my childhood in general. And the memories of my mother, again, are much more recent memories that have to do with her decline and her time in assisted living than they are about my childhood and growing up. So what is in the book is most of what I do remember about my childhood. And the biggest thing about my childhood was my, my oldest brother who's mentally ill. And there were five of us kids. And, uh, you know, there was definitely a way that that created a, a, a dynamic in our family that was, that was difficult for everybody involved. I mean, including that brother 
you know, he had his, his own struggles. And unfortunately, they were sort of aided and abetted by his codependent relationship with my mother and a dad who wasn't around much and a mom who wasn't around much either. So all, you know, all that stuff came together. And, uh, on the other hand, they are certainly part of what made me who I am. So I can't feel that it was a terrible thing. It wasn't, it wasn't great, but it doesn't mean my whole childhood was overshadowed by that either, you know, and it, if, if we had a different family, who knows how things would have turned out. But again, everybody, everybody has something in their family that they're dealing with. I, I don't know of any really happy families and I'm sure they're out there somewhere. Hello, happy families, wherever you are. But I just don't, I, none of my friends had, had one, you know, everybody had something, whether it was uh, physical abuse, you know, sexual abuse, absent parents, alcoholic parents, siblings, you know, so many things that can happen when you're in that situation. And when you're a kid, it's tricky because you are so unformed and you don't know yet that there's a larger world out there in which things might be different. So you have to sort of construct yourself before you really understand anything about that larger world. And so you do that by looking at the people around you or your family or your caretakers. And for better or worse, that's how you learn to love. That's what you, how you learn what love is. That's how you learn so much until you begin to kind of free yourself from that and try to, you know, then go and construct a self that, that integrates the other stuff in the world that's out there. You write in one of the essays that Selexa takes the edge off. Can you talk about what you mean by that? I think that was in the chapter that was talking about drinking and that Selexa sort of took the edge off wanting to have a drink. And if you go back to why you want to have a drink, well, I can talk about my father being an alcoholic or I could talk about, you know, patterns from my childhood that I hadn't overcome and I can talk about my struggle with depression, and all of those things are part of the edge. I guess along with the basic understanding that we're mortal, and if that isn't an edge, <laughs> I don't know what is. I, that's part of it, that we're here, but we, we don't get to be here for all that long, and we have to face some of the, the true facts of life, which, as Buddha said, are disease and aging and death. And those are true for everyone. So, and that's what the Buddha realized one day, and that was what led to Buddhism and, and enlightenment, or his enlightenment, and the that path, which is that we're all we're all in this situation. That's the human condition. And then how do we, you know, how do we make our lives from there and make them something good and and worthwhile, and not just go well, f it. <laughs> but I definitely have a some genetic component in me or something in me that, that there's a fuck it gene in me somewhere which which has led to some bad decisions and impulsive acts in the past anyway do you think that gene leads to some of your better writing well in the sense that i might say maybe nobody is going to like it if i say this but fuck it <laughs> In that sense, and again, not in the sense of being unkind or trying to piss people off, but in the sense of this is what I need to say, and I'm not going to censor myself in terms of saying it. That's pretty important to me. 
You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Kim Adonizio, author of the memoir, Bukowski in a Sundress. The interview was recorded via Skype. I noticed there's a lot of second person woven in through many of these essays. For instance, in How to Try to Stop Drinking So Much, you have these sentences that say, stop seeing your friends who drink. You spend many happy evenings at this table. Your friends are having parties. Take your mind off all that. Grow depressed and isolated. Wonder if it's time to get back on Celexa. You're saying you, but the reader knows that you're talking about you. I really like the second person. And for some reason, it it frees up a voice that works for me sometimes. And I, I took it from Lori Moore, who did a piece called, I think it was called How to Be a Writer. And so the sort of how-to idea where structurally it's very interesting because on the one hand, it's that voice. Is it the imperative voice where you're telling people what to do, the voice of command? But it's mixed with a voice of sort of what's actually happening. So I don't have an example in front of me. So if I say something like, stop seeing your friends who drink, that's an imperative. But then it's not all like that. It actually breaks into sort of just... Uh, what you're doing day to day and it goes back and forth between sort of a, a, a voice that's telling you to do something and a voice that is describing something you're actually doing and when I found that in her work I thought that was really intriguing uh, as any kind of stylistic thing is to me and when I see it I think wow that's really cool I want to try to do that and so that's you know where I started writing those second person pieces because I found I could slip back and forth between that voice of command and then the voice that was actually just sort of saying, you know, you're doing this now and you're doing that and you're, you're doing things. And then another, in another few lines, it's back to a command. I'm curious about the title because it was basically a description given to you when one of your books was long listed for the National Book Critics Circle Award and someone described you as Bukowski in a sundress, which seems in some way they see you in relationship to a male poet, not on your own. But I'm just wondering about your take when you first heard it and why you chose that as the title. Uh, well, there, there is an essay in the book, as you know, called Bukowski in a Sundress that talks about that. And for one thing, it's incredibly reductive. And I don't think it's true at all. And, you know, it focuses on one aspect of my writing because I do write a lot about drinking. And so it's it's just really reductive. And it's also very funny. <laughs> I appreciated it as a very witty barb. And when I thought about it, I thought, well, I, I think it would be very interesting just to to write about that and about how I took that and sort of spun it. And it's really the same thing I did with the confessional thing. It's, okay, people are going to call me a confessional poet. F*** it. I'm going to call this Confessions from a Writing Life. And then they can have at me. I don't like people telling me who I am. And that probably comes from growing up and being bullied a lot as a kid and feeling powerless. And it's probably also why I'm really interested in stories about powerless girls and why some of my characters in my books are those powerless girls in various ways because I did grow up feeling like that 
in a certain way. And I've always been interested in other people who feel powerless or are rendered powerless by the way our society is set up. One of the things that interested me was about fame within the poetry world. You have these people, it's like you're writing about your loneliness and you're writing about your issues, but then when you have fame, I think other people who look at you might think that your life is perfect, even if they read the content of your poems. And you had sort of semi-stalkers, people um, who would write you letters, people who sent you money, just kind of spooky people. And I'm just wondering how you, um, how, how does your own feelings juxtapose with that fame? And how do these stalkers juxtapose with your real fans? It's hard for me to say, I, the word fame is strange to me because I, I mean, I'm, you know, I definitely have a reputation as a poet and a number of people know my work, but I, the idea of fame for a poet is, is kind of self-canceling. And I'm, I'm happy about that because it's very interesting to me. The, the glimpses of fame I've had on a very minor level have been very destabilizing for me. Like when I was a finalist for the national book award, suddenly a lot of people were interested in my work that hadn't been before. Even a lot of my friends who never really read my poetry suddenly were saying, I really want to read your book. So, you know, there's a certain cachet that comes when you win an award or you get nominated for something big and suddenly people are calling you for interviews. And it it, it um, actually was kind of hard to handle. And that was a really minor brush with it. And my daughter, Aya, um, her name's Aya Cash, and, and she's on a TV show now on FXX that's shooting its third season. And so she's had a much bigger brush with fame where she sometimes gets recognized on the street now, and she has a lot of fans on social media. And I, I think it's really good that she's basically a, a really stable, grounded person because otherwise... I would be really worried about how she would handle this and how she is going to handle it if she gets more famous. It's it's a very weird thing in our culture. And I think if if you're not really prepared to deal with it, it can be something that can really f*** you up. It can either just make you feel really egotistical and self-centered and narcissistic, which, you know, we already, at least I already have tendencies toward and, and try to fight all the time. Um, but I'm just really aware of that. And so it's a weird thing. But but that's sort of also a level of yourself that's out there that in one sense has nothing to do with who you are on a on a daily basis. Just as your writing in a way has it has everything to do with who you are, and yet at the same time, you're in a different state of mind and, and when you're in when you're writing something and you're really in it, you're not really your ordinary self. And there just has to be some kind of balance. Because if you're never in your ordinary self, then you're probably just going to spin out into outer space and, and going to have a really hard time, you know, being tethered and anchoring your life to something and, you know, being a good person in the world and being a good friend if you're not connected in some way to something that really grounds you. So that, that I think, is the danger of it. Did you learn anything from your mother in this respect in that she was a tennis champion? You know, she had a glamorous life. She had dated movie stars. She won the U.S. Open and Wimbledon. 
And you you wrote that she was like an artist of deflection. And I don't know if that had to do with her tennis career or more personal things. But did you learn anything from her? Her tennis titles were all behind her by the time she started having kids. So when we were growing up, we knew she had been famous. And there were a lot of people in Washington, D.C., who were very impressed with her in, you know, she was tennis royalty and and teaching tennis and had a lot of students who knew of her victories and and admired her very much. Um, But she also, I think, or the bigger thing that I learned from her was a kind of tenacity and a certain sense of just determination and driving determination to master things. And that wasn't only in tennis, which she mastered at a young age, but later she became a life master at bridge. She started learning about computers very early on. She learned how to repair Volkswagens. (laughs) She just would, you know, find something that interested her and begin to try to master it. And I think I got that from her. And I think my daughter probably got it from me. She was good at a lot of things. And she she wanted or needed to be good at a lot of things. This is probably one of my two favorite parts of the book, but you're talking about how she had Parkinson's and some dementia and ended up in a home that was called Somerville. And you talk about her, you know, there was the Wimbledon and the U.S. Open and the French Open finals. And then um, you say um, there had been golf and jogging and swimming When she took me to London in the 80s for an event honoring the female Wimbledon champions, we ate strawberries and clotted cream with the Duke and Duchess of Kent. There were daily rides to the tournament in the special green Wimbledon minicars and chats with Martina Navratilova. Now there is Somerville and fumbling at the buttons on her sweater. Now there are Cheez-Its. And it just was such a profound image of of the indignities of aging and the beauties of youth and how you know it doesn't matter how many people love you when you're famous you still might end up eating Cheez-Its yeah well that's the thing about life is that that's why it's good not to get attached to those things if if you have some kind of success in the world it's really great to enjoy that success and I think it would be wrong not to enjoy that success, but you also have to recognize that it's not going to go on forever, and you do confront the rest of life and what else is a part of life, and it's it's something that changes. Your, your perceptions of life change as you get older, and you begin to see what happens to the body, and I think, uh, you know, I'm of the boomer generation, and a lot of us are in this position of watching our parents go down and really dealing with end-of-life issues and thinking about those things for our parents. And, of course, it also makes us aware that one day, if we're lucky and we live that long, we're going to be facing those kinds of issues too. And that's, that's true of everybody. And so that understanding that we're not young forever and whatever happens to us when we're younger, um, we're we're going to change and life's going to change for us. And that doesn't mean it has to be diminished, but there's a certain amount of, of diminishment that happens because that's that's the nature of life. And so, again, it's back to sort of how do you balance that and how do you ground yourself and how do you come to terms with that in a way that's 
that's good, you know, and as good as possible that you try to understand it and try to be okay with, with those changes and with the things that happen. And of course, I, I always feel like Edna Millay, who says, I am not resigned. You know, Into the earth they go, the wise and the lovely, but I am not resigned. And it would be great to have some kind of Buddhist understanding of it all and be able to put that in its place, but I'm not resigned. And it's, I don't think many of us are, especially when we lose someone close to us. Does it feel different in the world without your parents? Yeah, it does. And my, especially I think when my mom died because I had her in my life for so much longer. And somebody once said that when your parents die, it's like the roof is taken off your house. And I think that's really true because you have some sense that there's someone over you and there's some kind of protection over you as long as your parents are alive. And then when they go, you realize that you're now the roof and there isn't anybody else in a certain way. So can you read from an author that influenced you as a writer? Yeah, I, I'm going to read you just a really short excerpt from Whitman's Song of Myself, which pretty much is my philosophy about all this stuff. These are really the thoughts of all men in all ages and lands. They are not original with me. If they are not yours as much as mine, they are nothing or next to nothing. If they are not the riddle and the untying of the riddle, they are nothing. If they are not just as close as they are distant, they are nothing. This is the grass that grows wherever the land is and the water is. This is the common air that bathes the globe. Whitman was just important to me because he thought about me, even though he didn't know me. And I always loved that. And he didn't say he was special. He said, no, I'm the same as you. And that was really important to hear, too. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Kim Adonizio, author of the memoir, Bukowski in a Sundress. Can you read something that you wrote that maybe changed a lot from the first draft or something that you're really happy with or something that you really worked on hard? Yeah, I'll read the end of this piece, Pants on Fire, that's about how I lie in poems. And it was hard to figure out how to do that. You know, I, I, I looked at a lot of poems and went through sort of, where did I talk the truth and where did I lie? And I lie, I lie a lot in poems, even though people think they're all true. So I sort of tried to unpack some poems for people. So this is the end of that essay. And it's possible to feel happiness after grief, just as I wrote. The one I saw my neighbor's two-year-old granddaughter running around naked except for a fox stole. I wasn't grieving. I may have been a little depressed. Then again, I may have been merely bored and slightly anxious, sitting at my desk and staring out the window, hoping something poetic would happen out there so I could write it down, go play with my cat, and pick up some taco fixings for dinner with my boyfriend. I confess to happiness, that's no jive. Especially since I got back on Celexa, I no longer feel that the world is a darkling plain swept with confused alarms of failed romances and cues. I confess to grief, to death like a stone well, loved ones falling in, never to surface again. I confess that a Kelson of my creations is love. The poems are not the life. Liar, liar, pants on fire, nose as long as a telephone wire. The little girls outside my window are singing, skipping rope, and singing into my litany they go. Do you want to talk a little bit about why you chose that? 
Uh, well, just as I said, that I was really looking at a lot of different poems and figuring out how to talk about how poems change from what they start out to be, or, or what, or rather, what people think they are when they read them and where they actually come from, and the things that you put into a poem that aren't necessarily true in order to make the poem. So it was a little lesson, I guess, I was trying to tell people who are interested in how writers work or people who are writing or trying to write and, and sort of want to do their own version of things. And then a Kelson of my creations, of course, comes from Whitman, who said, a, a, a love is a Kelson of the creation. Anyway, something like that. It's very close to that. And, uh, and a Kelson is the part of the boat that, you know, like the keel of the boat that keeps it steady. And so I love that idea that love is a Kelson of the creation. It's just a, a beautiful thing to say and think about. Where do you write? I write in bed because it's the place I feel farthest from the world. And so I feel freest there. What do you do and where do you go to get away from writing? Mostly I will play music. I'll go practice my flute or harmonica and sometimes I'll go and look at art, which is another thing I love to do that sort of gets me away from language. Just anything that gets me away from language and out of my head is really helpful because then I can come back to it a, a, a little fresher. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Mostly myself a few days or weeks later because then I'm a slightly different person and I'm a little more unglued from it. And that's the best thing for me is to try to get away from my work and read it as though somebody else wrote it. That's the best way to really see it clearly. So I'm really my first reader. How have you dealt with rejection? <laughs> Gin and grapefruit, margaritas, bottle of wine. <laughs> I guess, uh, yeah, rejection is hard for everybody. And uh, that's somewhat tongue in cheek. But, you know, often it's a good thing to do. Just like you might have a margarita if you're celebrating. I'll have it to celebrate a rejection it'll make me feel a little better and, and take the sting away. And then I also just usually try to write something else as soon as possible. And what is your favorite word? Breathe. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Kim Adonizio, author of the memoir, Bukowski in a Sundress. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The First Draft music is produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.